You're listening to Look at My Records. This is episode 230, and I'm your host, Tom Gallo. Our friend Kip Berman, who performs as The Natural, returns to the Look at My Records podcast for this edition. Since our last conversation in 2021, the former Pains of Being Pure at Heart frontman has released a few singles as The Natural, and last week he shared the project's second full-length, Summer of No Light. The title, which was inspired by the climate crisis of 1816, draws parallels to two lost summers in Berman's own life, specifically his first summer post-grad in 2002 and the shut-in pandemic summer of 2020. It was during the latter that Berman penned the songs that appear on the record, escaping nightly to the basement of his Princeton, New Jersey home after putting his kids to sleep. During the interview, Kip and I chatted about this period of deep reflection, including what it was like sifting through past memories and relationships during a time of isolation, how the writer Mary Shelley inspired the record's themes, the more full band sound of Summer of No Light, recording a fourth album with producer Andy Savers, and much more. Kip also picked some awesome records from my collection, including some great cuts from The Kinks, Girls, Billy Bragg, and more. We'll dive into our interview right after the jump. If you're interested in hearing more episodes of Look at My Records, they're available on all streaming platforms. Please remember to rate, review, like, and subscribe on your platform of choice. I also encourage you to check out the Look at My Records website, where you can find reviews, premieres of new music playlists, more information on upcoming events in Jersey City and New York City, and much more. Check it out at lookatmyrecords.com. Hey, Kip. Hey. Kip Berman, The Natural. How are you? I'm doing great, Tom. Thank you so much for having me on. Totally. Very excited. Your record, Summer of Hell, is out. Available now on Dirty Bingo Records. And just before we started recording, everyone, it's a khaki vinyl. You may pull it out when you get your copy and think it's standard black vinyl, but just hold it up to the light and you'll see that it's in fact khaki slash dark brown green. I myself like black vinyl fine, but I, I, I feel the spirit of our age demands that every time you put out a record, it can't just be black. It has to be some vibrant color to get people excited about it. Me, I, maybe I'm old fashioned. I'm just like, I think black's a cool color for records. And apparently it sounds better too, black vinyl. Than, I don't know if that's an urban myth or whatever, but I've heard that black sounds better than colored vinyl. But I haven't really noticed a difference, to be honest. Well, I hope it, I hope my record sounds okay no matter what color it's uh, pressed on. Everyone, I can attest to you, this new record by The Natural sounds great on vinyl. I got it on my record player right now. So I was listening to it a whole bunch to prepare for this interview, and it sounds great, everyone. You should get a copy. Oh, you're you're very, very welcome. Yeah, it's funny how colored vinyl is the thing right now. And I noticed that 
seven inches aren't really a thing anymore, but they were a thing like 10 years ago, you know, that people were pressing seven inch records way more um, in the late 2000s, early 2010s. And now they've kind of like gone away. I, th I think it's just become so uh, expensive to press them that it feels kind of like a ripoff to sell two songs for like $11 or something like that. It's kind of like back in the yeah. day when I was a kid, like a seven inch was like a rad way to like just, I don't know how I feel about this band, but I'm at a hardcore show and I'll get their record for like three bucks or whatever and hear a couple songs. And, and sometimes you discover something really cool and sometimes you're just like whatever, but it's not a huge outlay of, uh, of money for that. Um, but nowadays it, it just costs so much to print them that most, most labels don't really, uh, want to do that. So, uh, it's a shame. I, I was lucky enough that Slumberland uh, put out a lot of old Payne 7 inches. and uh, Yeah, I have like almost all of the Payne 7 inches, I think. I love uh, playing them when I DJ and stuff like that. So that's why I like 7 inches for DJing. For I mean, for, for those of you out there that are purists of the of, uh, of DJing, uh, 7 inches is, are great for that. Because you don't actually have to find the right song or the right place on the record. It's kind of just like, <laughs> I'm just going to push play and it's going to start off more or less on time. So... Uh, for a sort of janky DJ like myself, like a seven inches is definitely the way to go. Totally. So how does it feel to have your second solo record under the belt? It's got to be a good feeling to know that, hey, you did it once and now you're doing it again. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. It's, it's sort of that strange transition where you're no longer a uh, new artist or whatever, where you're just like, uh, you know, like, hey, this guy from this is doing this. It's now what I'm doing. Uh, so it feels great. I was really uh, grateful I got to make this record and I did, recorded it, you know, I think fall of 2021. So it's kind of been a while in the gestation process, but now it's finally entering the world and I'm excited for people to give it a, give it a spin, see what they think. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I know there are difficulties when you're putting out your first solo album, but in some ways it seems like it could maybe be easier for a lot of artists, as a lot of times it seems like the first solo record is something that's maybe been marinating for a while. It's a collection of songs that maybe you've written over the course of several years that have been piling up. And, you know, now you're putting them together on your first uh, solo record. So with that said, what was it like putting together the songs for uh, this second LP? What were some of the challenges and in what ways did you maybe feel like more comfortable uh, writing songs for this record the second time around and recording them? That's a good question. You know, the first record was such a departure from uh, the kind of music I'd been making before. And I think it caught a lot of people uh, by surprise and um, might have might have been not what people were expecting uh, me to be into Um but I was excited about the, the new direction. And, and this album is, if anything, just kind of a doubling down on it. When I went into the studio, uh, I was talking to Andy, uh, Andy Savers, who recorded the record with me. And um, Brian uh, Alvarez played drums. And Kyle Forrester played keyboards. And uh, Josh, Joshua Rumble uh, played bass on it. But I was talking to Andy, and I was thinking, gosh, I probably have to like come up with some new idea or concept to get him interested in doing another record. And I was like, yeah, it'll be like this or like this. And he's like, why can't we just kind of do it like we did the last one? And I was like, well, cool. That's what I want to do anyway. So I, I, I was just like, let me just like, get in a room and bang out some songs and see, hope they turn out well. And he was, he was pretty down with that, with that 
that process of, of working. It's also, you know, quick. You know, if you're all in a room playing together and you play it right, you're pretty much done. You know, <laughs> you don't have to, like, do each yeah. individual, like, hi-hat over and over again or whatever. You're just kind of like, hey, that was the song. Cool. It sounds like the song. Yeah, this is the, I think, fourth full length you've worked on with uh, Andy Savers. I believe the last two Pains records, the first natural record, and now this record. That's a that's a pretty long stretch to, to be working uh, with the same person. What brought you back to him uh, again and again, and especially for this record? Uh, I think he, uh, he's, like, very versatile. He doesn't have... Um like the signature Andy Savers sound or whatever. He's open to trying different stuff and working in different ways and working in different contexts. I think uh, sometimes people think like a, a producer or a mixer or whatever has like their sound and you're going to go to them and get like, maybe some people do like Jack Antonoff records kind of sound like Jack Antonoff records or whatever. But Andy seemed just as comfortable working with like a bunch of synths and MIDI and stuff like on, on like Days of Abandon. As he did, just like yeah. being like putting a microphone in a room and turn, turn, pushing record and, and kind of letting what happens yeah. happens. And I, I think um, that coupled with like a genuine enthusiasm for this new music I'm making was really heartening. You know, like most of the people I know uh, through through pains, um, you know, when I'd be like, hey, check out this new thing I'm doing. <laughs> They're all just like, uh, that's cool. But we liked the other thing and we're not like that. Um, into uh, this this new thing, and whether that's with labels or or anyone, like you, you kind of you kind of get used to people being like, yeah, yeah, it's cool, you're doing a thing you believe in, but we don't like it. But Andy was like the rare person that was like, actually, this is cool. I'm, I'm psyched on this, and I'd love to work on it. And uh, sometimes just having someone in your corner, someone that believes in you, uh, means a lot because you know you can believe in yourself, but it's nice if there's at least one other person that doesn't think you're like uh, making a making a fool of yourself. It's a great sounding record, and I really like it a whole lot. And it's your second release as the the natural, as you had mentioned. And you kind of alluded to it a little earlier, and you've kind of talked about it. You know, the transition from being in the pains of being pure at art, writing songs uh, within that mindset, to transitioning to the natural, writing songs within a completely different uh, mindset. And with the first record, I'm sure, you know, going through that process, there are things you learned. Uh, what'd you learn from the process of making that first record a completely different sounding record than the stuff you were making for over a decade that you kind of maybe brought to uh, the process of writing and recording this album? Well, the first record was, I mean, I'm not a huge Seinfeld uh, buff, but I think there's like this idea where George decides to do everything the opposite the way he'd been doing it up to that point in his life and things start going really well, just like on principle, just doing <laughs> the opposite. And I, I, it wasn't like a conscious decision, but I have this like a uh, knee jerk contrarian kind of uh, outlook sometimes with music where even with pains, it was like, I, maybe to my detriment, I always wanted to do something kind of to say, no, nah, that's not what I meant. I meant this with each successive thing. And like with the first pains record, it was like, Oh, like very like cardigan clad, uh, indie pop, noisy indie pop, like, but rooted really in, um, like, you know, bands like the Pastels and Eilers set and this sort of like rough jangling sound. And then like the second record, I, you know, I was maybe tired of everyone being like, oh, you guys must own a lot of cardigans. 
Um, and I'm like, well, I do, but like, there's more. Yeah, there's me too. more to me too. There's like suburban malls. So like, the second record was like very like, uh, like kind of like we want like hot topic mall rock with like sort of these. They weren't like cool ideas at the time. I think over time they've kind of been accepted as like, you know, like citing things like Smashing Pumpkins or like Weezer or whatever. Yeah. Like, became part of the vocabulary of indie music or artists or whatever but at the time the thought of like the pains of being pure heart which was like seen as probably the most like twee or emo or sad sad cardigan band imaginable like being like you know actually we're gonna make hot topic music now <laughs> so like our next <laughs> album was like very rooted in like you know that heavy um loud soft kind of thing where you're like very yeah. emotional and very direct um, and then after that, everyone was like, probably like, oh, I hope they make another like big mall rock album again. And we probably should have, but I got into this idea of like being the kind of band that could play up, show up at like a open mic night with some acoustic guitars and be able to still play your songs without everything being a certain way. So I was like really into like uh, a genre they have in Japan called neo acoustic, which is kind of like they kind of lump things like Aztec camera and there and uh it's yeah. sort of, um, it is more indie pop again, but it's kind of fancy. So like Days of Abandon kind of had this uh, like yeah. acoustic-centered kind of sound. And uh, so like each, each thing I've done kind of has been uh, a pushback against the previous thing. But with The Natural, it was almost like a rejection of everything and just like not using metronomes or guitar pedals or like synthesizers or anything. And I, I was just kind of like trying to connect with the thing about music that I, that really meant something to me, which is the immediacy of just writing a song and playing it. And I know that sounds a little hackneyed or maybe like just getting back to my roots, man. But there's something about like what, when like everyone's gone, like what do you want to be doing when no one cares? Like it's, and I just want to like make songs and, and play them for people. And the nat that first natural record kind of allowed me to realize it doesn't take in fact, it was the first EP. Like, I went over with Andy's Andy's studio on the last day of a tour, and just he's like, "You want to record some stuff?" And I'm like, "Yeah, but don't we need to get like someone to play drums or figure out this or that?" He's like, "No, just come over. There's a microphone. Here's a guitar. I'll push record. You sing your songs, and that's that." And that first EP was really uh, "Know Me More" was just that, and it really gave me a lot of confidence to realize that you know, you know, you know these things, but I had the confidence to realize hey, I can just like write songs and play them and that's enough. And it doesn't have to be through this lens of like what professional music is supposed to be or getting to the next level or any of that kind of nonsense about the music uh, ecosystem and more just about making music and, and, and having a good time. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that because I kind of feel like this record has a bit of a different vibe when compared with tethers they're similar in 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 ways but i feel like this is sonically uh definitely more vibrant and uplifting sounding record consistently i feel like the first record kind of had those sparser guitar kip singing moments like new moon and sylvia the cup of youth but those moments are kind of rarer on this record i think save for the last track on the the record where it kind of ends a little uh sparser what do you attribute that to because a record does sound like really full 
pretty consistently all the way through. You know, after Know Me More, I was just thinking I wanted to make an album that I could play in any context, that it didn't matter if I had a band with me or if I just had like a five-string guitar in someone's basement and, and no microphone or whatever. I just wanted to be able to convey the so- songs without a sense that uh, the production or the way it was recorded dictated how they could be played. Um, you know, with, with Pains, there was always so much. Uh, if we had to play a show, you had to get five people into a van and like get the drums and the equipment and all that stuff. And it, it kind of, over time, made us not be able to do certain things that would have been cool because it was just like too much people and gear and stuff had to be considered or we could only play these kinds of venues because we needed to have this kind of setup. And I just got really frustrated by that because I felt like we were like not able to do lots of fun, cool stuff that would have been like, you know, you want to come over to my basement and like play for some some friends or whatever. Um, So I was like really trying to figure out a way to make music in a way that I could just play it by myself and I could just go on, put like, you know, my my little amp in like a a rented Hyundai or whatever and just like drive somewhere (laughs) and play a show and then like drive back home and stuff. And a lot of that has to do with where I am at life. I have have kids. I don't want to be away for so long, but uh, just sort of the logistics of how I didn't want the things that weren't music to get in the way of making music. So that first album was probably consciously, conscientiously like, hey, these are all songs I could just like play by myself on stage. And this second one, maybe I got a little enamored by like the possibilities of what like a full on rock band could be. And yeah. maybe I hope that I'd have the opportunity to kind of tour uh, with more of like a, a group of people and, and even like getting to work with Mike Brenner, who played the pedal steel on a few songs was really cool. Um, but, you know, I, I think this one leaned into the idea of like a full on band uh, more more so than the f- earlier album. And the irony is it's like I probably still I'm going to do most of my shows by myself, but uh, hopefully the, the songs will come through nonetheless. But uh, but yeah, Tom, totally. I'm, for, for I'm you, sure for you, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing a band to Jersey City. On. Yes, that's right, everyone. September 14th at Pet Shop. And you're also playing the night before for uh, Brooklyn residents at Purgatory. Yeah, it's two nights right? before. So it's September 12th. Two nights uh, before. Purgatory, and I, this great Jersey band, I'm sorry we couldn't get them on at Pet Shop, but uh, Lightheaded, who just signed to Slumberland, uh, are going to play at the Purgatory show, which is going to be cool, because I've, I've only been familiar with their music. I was going to say MySpace, but, but, but from a band camp. But like some like really good friends have been like really hyping them up to me. Uh, Andy Boder, who used to run Cake Shop, was like, I love this new band, Lightheaded. You guys should play with them sometimes. And uh, I listen to their music, and they're really cool. So I'm glad I get to play with them at um, at, at Purgatory, but I'm, I'm also glad I get to play with uh, Jersey Jersey Legends Joy Cleaner uh, at um, at the Pet Shop show on the 14th. So it's it's going to be a couple of fun nights yeah. for sure. Lightheaded is great. I uh, did a show with them summer 22 at the Meat Locker in Montclair. I don't know if you're familiar I've, with I've that. I've heard place. of the Meat Locker. I've never played the meat locker but i had some but i've heard of the meat locker <laughs> that's okay it's a legendary uh really grimy diy space it's just... like a, it's like a punk it's a punk <laughs> hardcore but you know this band i loved called the prids yeah. uh from portland where they were planning some tour dates and they yeah. were kind of like they were like trying to book stuff at the meat locker and i was like i'm not sure if i'm as punk rock as you guys to go full meat locker but uh very ba- very basic uh <laughs> setup I think it's like a one speaker PA 
two speaker PA and the PA speakers are like all the way in the back for some reason. <laughs> and a lot of trash all over the place, you know, interesting guy runs it who greets you at the front door. But well, maybe, but it was a fun, it was a fun show. And I'll actually tell you a story about that show that I did with lightheaded. Uh, it was a four band bill, lightheaded, nylon from asbury park a couple other bands too and we're about to start the show and then this two guys from this metal band uh, roll in the front door and they're like hey uh we were supposed to play a house show uh down the block but the cops busted it before we could play like can we like open the show and like we got a bunch of people here who'll come in that want to see us and stuff and i was like yeah sure so this like super metal hardcore band opened the show and like really like tore the roof off the place and brought like 50 people. Probably. And it was Tony Molina. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. In fact, uh, yeah, there's some good shows coming up. In fact, I think Whiteheaded is playing with Tony Molina and Janine's for a couple shows on the East Coast this fall. And I'm going to definitely try to get out to some of those because those are all bands I really dig a lot. Yeah, those are all three really good bands. That's exciting. So to turn back to the record. The record. The record's title, Summer of No Light. Uh, really uh, intriguing title. You were inspired by the climate crisis of 1816. Uh, there was kind of no summer that year because there was a volcanic eruption that blocked out the sun. It resulted in significant global cooling, too. Uh, what drew you to that uh, time period and historical event in particular? Uh, Why did it resonate with you? Well, I, I guess like it's, it's like a famous, it's a famous summer because like no one knew why all of a sudden, like Europe was freezing in the summer, the crops were f failing. I mean, there was it was, it was a significant event insofar as it displaced like hundreds of thousands of people and like. You know, like when yeah. you don't have summer, then you don't have crops and you don't have food. And that's like kind of what you need to survive. But what, what drew me to it was this idea that uh, Mary Shelley and Pete Shelley. Uh, I'm sorry, Percy Shelley. Pete Shelley's in the Buzzcocks. Percy Shelley. Yeah. <laughs> Three great Oh, Shelley's yeah. Shelley, there. Shelley, Shelley. Um, <laughs> so uh, Mary Shelley uh, famously wrote Dracula the summer of 1816. And she did so in part because she was living in a house somewhere in Switzerland, I think, on Lake Geneva, uh, sort of decamped there with her husband, who she eloped with when she was a teenager, Percy Shelley, who had been married to someone else at the time. Uh, and then Lord Byron is coming too, and he's hooking up with Mary's half-sister. Um, and Lord Byron brings his personal doctor along, which I think you can only interpret as drug dealer. Um, so it was like four people in their late, four or five people in their late teens, early 20s, all kind of getting fucked up and fucking each other. But also because the weather, they noticed the weather's terrible. They were planning to like go outside and like do like fun summer stuff. But they were kind of stuck inside all summer and they decided to have a ghost story writing contest. And uh, I think Mary Shelley won because she wrote a... Um, genre-defining work of fiction that uh, we know to this day. Um, but it was sort of a, uh, a lost summer uh, in which there was uh, 
a lot of creativity, but also a lot of, you know, debauchery. And it made me think of other summers in my life. Like when I, when I graduated college, I was kind of like staying in this house with four or five other people in the same age range. And unfortunately, the only great creative works I was doing was writing songs in the style of The Strokes that rhymed um, Saturday night I I with all right I I um, So I, I think uh, Mary, Mary won that round pretty handedly. Um, but it just drawing the parallels to like this idea that even hundreds of years ago, um, you know, there's still people kind of getting fucked up and fucking and t- doing the equivalent of creative work, whether it's like writing novels or starting indie rock bands or whatever. And then I, I wrote all these songs in another summer in 2020 during lockdown yeah. where, you know, for other reasons, uh, I couldn't really go out and do much. And I was kind of just stuck indoors all day. And then sadly, it wasn't that time of life of uh, debauchery or sex or drugs or drinking or whatever. It was mostly just taking care of my family and trying to get from day to day. And there was a certain mundanity to all of that. And obviously, you know, you can always be like other people had it worse. And it's not, not like even worth talking about in a way because everyone experienced that time similarly. Um, but I was sort of writing these songs in those few moments of solitude that were afforded to me um, after the kids went to bed. And I'd just go down to the basement and, and just kind of write and play guitar and let my mind wander and kind of mourn uh, a world that I thought had uh, ended in some respects. And um, while it didn't end, um, it, it sort of felt like that at the time, that like this idea of like, going out and like being in bands and traveling and doing all that stuff. It just seemed like all of a sudden it was over. Um, and maybe it's over for me still, but, um, but I think I just took a lot of, uh, not like inspiration, but just like a lot of, uh, sucker from the idea that this is not the first time, like the people have been like sort of trapped indoors, trying to pass the time, trying to stay sane, trying to get by. Um, and it won't be the last, um, so I just thought, you know, in 2020, we were also facing a climate crisis this time, uh, not an accident. Um, and we understood the reasons, whereas in 1816, like, people just didn't know what the fuck was going on. Uh, but it was also a time of great social upheaval. Um, in 1816, yeah, like, the peasantry were roving uh, Europe, searching for food, you know, searching for... Um, hospitality of any kind, kindness of any kind, humanity of any kind. And, and, and some even like I've read some stuff where the Dracula story, some feel is inspired by this idea of uh, the monster goes and searches for people to recognize this humanity, but is turned away at every place. I think um, in Central Europe, like these displaced peasants were experiencing something similar. And there's some speculation that um, Mary uh, saw this phenomenon and kind of interpolated it into her writing. I mean, who knows for sure on that stuff. But yeah, it just seemed like a lot of these things um, connected. Like 1816, maybe the summer of 2002 for me, the summer of 2020 for me. Um, But uh, yeah, I just thought it was kind of an interesting idea uh, to draw upon. Yeah, and listening to the record, it seems like you're really sifting through your past on this record. And it seems like when you were writing those songs in solitude, um, during the summer of 2020, you were kind of reflecting on the past a lot. Uh, were you 
really reflecting a lot on a particular time in your life when you were writing this record. And, you know, it seems like doing something like that really, you know, coming to terms with your past and, you know, understanding and being okay with things that have happened, you know, is something that can come out on the other end of that. You know, what you learn kind of after, you know, doing that kind of emotional exercise. It, it's, a, it's a good question. I think I'm a, I must be like a slow, slow thinker or something. It's like, it takes me a while to process stuff. I, I think even on the first Pains record, a lot of those songs were written about times long before that. And it just kind of was my way of making sense of that. Strangely enough, on this new record, there's songs that sort of revisit events or situations that I dealt with yeah, on the first definitely. Pains record, but from a different perspective. I think two songs, one is Carolina, um, that's the second track on the album, and that's kind of like a a retelling or a revisiting of, of a song called uh, The Ten Year Itch, which was on the first Pains record, and it's about yeah. sort of about the same person. In fact, I'm... I think I'm going to see them pretty soon when I go down to uh, North Carolina to play a show. Like, we're still buds. Um, but, you know, the first, that first, on the 10-year itch, it was sort of like purient curiosity about this person who kind of like ran off with one of uh, their professors um, and sort of the dynamics of like sex and power and like, but it's, yeah. there was like a sort of, maybe it was a little judgmental, but it wasn't like too... It was also kind of curious, you know, it's like, it's like one of those things where it's like, yeah. you're not like, oh, that is wrong. How dare you? It was more kind of like, hey, this is kind of interesting. Um, and then I think on, on the newer song, it just like sees things from a, a different angle and kind of takes into the emotional consequence of that kind of thing more and, and trying to understand uh, the people or the, the people behind it and sort of my my perspective on that at the time versus now I, I I don't I don't know how to quite get into it but I, f- I feel like it's it, if it's about the same thing it's told pretty differently uh, um, it's not so lurid and not so curious about like uh, the 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 scandalous aspects and more about like sort of the emotional the emotional like outcomes of, of all that and how you're feeling after. Um, and then another song is uh, Stephanie Don't Live Here Anymore. Does it live here? Yeah. And uh, that song, that song is almost like a retelling of A Teenager in Love. But where A Teenager in Love, I kind of like drew on different sources to kind of give it this more, I mean, there was sort of like A Teenager in Love, I kind of drew on like maybe three different people kind of dealing with a similar situation, but in different ways. Um this one kind of strips a lot of that away and just kind of actually does speak about the person that I I used to know uh, when I lived in Portland and our relationship. And like, she was, she, she died of kidney failure, like in her early twenties, like when I was out there and, and uh, it was just like, it was like a tough thing. And it was, uh, and it was kind of revisiting that story, but in a more um, direct way and not trying to embellish it to make it a better song. I guess if you could say, like, A Teenager in Love kind of has, I don't know, kind of these, like, arch, like, literary conceits and, like, trying... Uh, it's sort of like a... There's a little too much uh, satisfaction with my own writing and not enough, like, just focus on the thing itself. And I thought, like, when I was doing this song, like, I was dealing with the same story but kind of telling it more 
more truthfully and more more directly. Um, I don't I don't know how to answer those questions, but yeah, you're right. Like a lot of this album reflects upon the past. Like Summer of Hell um, is about that summer in 2002 when I was like dating this woman uh, that weirdly we're now married and we have two children, but we weren't like dating from then to now. Um, but like yeah, it was yeah. sort of like this sort of oh well it's never going to work out so what's the point and sort of this summer of uh, a lot of like emotional anguish the the kind you can do when you're like 21 or 22 more more so when yeah. you're 42 or 43 but um uh it was sort of revisiting that summer and and what went on and um then uh on the yeah and then the closing track too winter uh winter green it's, yeah. it's the same idea just told told from a different perspective and um so there's there's a lot of reflection on on my past and in and, and, and these songs and in their reflection upon my artistic past, like other songs I've written. And I hope that doesn't become too solipsistic or like head up my own ass or anything. But uh, I, I find there's certain things in my life that I keep coming back to and trying to make sense of uh, a sort of, you know, Highway 69 revisited or whatever, you know, it's like, uh, <laughs> I don't I don't know. I don't know why I do it, but there's certain things that don't resolve easily. And so they they become songs and sometimes they're songs about the same thing. I really like Wintergreen uh, as a closing track on the record because I feel like it really comes full circle because I know it kind of delves into your relationship with your wife, kind of the ups and downs, but, you know, kind of brings everything back uh, to the present, sort of, whereas a lot of the record is peering into the past. But this kind of like that kind of like brings it back to the here and now almost. Yeah, I think it's I think it's animated. uh but kind of just like the simple hopes and and desires that help you get through like the hard times. And I um, I think a, a relationship, a human relationship that lasts more than a summer of no light or, or, a, or a season, you need something that you come back to all the time and, and remember why yeah. um, the, hard, the hard bits are worth it and how right. why the challenges and the frustrations are worth it. And, um, and I think it's just in wintergreen, what is it like? Uh, all I want is to be a friend to you. And that's basically it. And then it's like, uh, you know, I think I, I liked ending the album that way and, and just kind of, uh, you know, there's a lot of recrimination and shame and death and sex and drugs and rock and roll, like up to that point and Satan and hell and this and yeah. that. But it's like, at the end of the day, I just, I just want to be like decent to this person that I love and, and yeah. that's kind of what I hope is the bedrock upon which like our relationship or our lives are based totally Lucifer's Glory one of the singles from the record you described it as not a full-throated Hail Satan but it is full-throated so I was just curious what Lucifer's Glory uh, meant to you oh man that's a good one. You know, it's sort of, uh, let's see. Um, well, I think uh, maybe I'll quote Cheryl Crow and say the first cut is the deepest. Um, so to say, uh, like, first loves in our lives um, leave a lasting impression. And I'm not even sure all the layers that are in this song. Um, I think there's this, uh, at its core, is a, it's a song of 
thwarted desire. Like you still are into this person, even though you know they're bad news. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just kind of that. I mean, um, you can look at it more biblically and think that like, you know, between, uh, two infinitely old deities and, uh, some guy named Adam born yesterday, that was a pretty, uh, fucked up love triangle from the start of a psychosexual drama. <laughs> it's like a weird, yeah. it's a weird three-way going on there. Uh, but, um, <laughs> maybe a little full-throated. Um, but, but I don't think it's, the song's biblical, even if it draws on a lot of that imagery. It's, it's kind of like, probably closer to Taylor Swift's I Knew You Were Trouble. Like, sort of like, I knew you were bad news, <laughs> and it's a good thing you yeah. won't have me back, because I still kind of want you, even though I know I shouldn't. Like, uh, I don't know if John Mayer's the devil. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's sort of that idea of... He is in the Grateful Dead. So I know a, a friend of the devil is a friend of mine. I guess that's, that's, that, that is uh, six degrees of Grateful Dead and company. Um, mostly company these days, um, but uh, yeah. no shame in that. But yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's it's really just a song of longing and and also this idea of like what's idealized. Like so, like we meet this initial character, like whatever this Lucifer is. It's like I don't want to be right if it's right with them. I don't want to be born if it's born again. I just want to drink till the world don't spin. It's like, there's something that we initially think is noble about this, like, desire to be contrary in everything and to resist and be a rebel. And, like, there's something inherently cool about being a rebel and, like, resisting what you're supposed to be doing and standing against it. And maybe that is cool. And a lot of times that is cool. But it's also, like, sometimes there's less to it than that. Like, it's there's not there's not a lot of thought that animates that kind of attitude. It's just kind of a knee jerk. Like, Oh, if they want me to do something, I'm going to do the opposite. See if I care. And, um, I, I think there's like some of the idea that that's both attractive and a seductive, but also can be just kind of like selfish and empty and kind of like uncaring and, uh, a sort of like a hedonism that's like rooted in sort of like, uh, selfishness or ego. Um, and sort of like trying to see the two sides of that idea where it's like, on one hand, being a rebel is cool. On the other hand, like, sometimes you're just an asshole, you know. Um, so maybe there's yeah. there's something in that, too. But uh, but it's still kind of cool. <laughs> it's still kind of cool. And it's in the third part. 100%. And, and the third part, I guess, is just like, you know, it's like, uh, I mean, it's like it's like an old saw now. But like in Madame Bovary or whatever, uh, like Flaubert. Like depicts this just kind of like horrible protagonist. Like she's like status seeking and covetous and like puts her partner up to uh, things he can't do and pushes him to bankrupt the family. It's just, she's just like a terrible status seeking destructive force. And of course, like Flaubert's like, yeah, she reminds me of me. And like, maybe there's like a, a habit of, of people who write stuff to kind of, want to reveal the, the worst aspects of, of their identity or like the worst or see themselves in the most negative light possible. I don't think like, I don't know much about Fulbert's personal life. Maybe he spent too much on like home decor that he couldn't pay off the bills. I, I don't know. But there's sort of this idea of like kind of reveling in portraying yourself, not in your best light, but maybe like revealing like the, wor- the, the your worst impulses and inside yourself. I don't know, but it's it's a cool song, and I, I want I think it's a 
it reminds me a little bit of uh, Billy Bragg a little bit, like just the opening, just how how kind of loose and strummy the, the, the guitar is. And I, I just remember just kind of going down to the basement and playing that. And it just sounded, it sounded really cool to me. And uh, so the, the song just kind of came and mostly in one sitting, um, which is, which is cool. Sometimes when you spend too much time on something, it just gets worse and worse. So usually the best songs are the ones that just kind yeah. of happen. And if you like work really hard, at something it tends to undermine that uh, the that initial spirit of, of creativity. But maybe totally. I'm just lazy. And you have <laughs> maybe I'm just lazy. No, no way. That first first idea, best idea, right? Yeah, I'm not the first person to that's, think of that either. <laughs> you got some shows coming up, and as I mentioned earlier, you know this is a really great uh, full sounding record. Sounds great with the backing band and you got a couple of full band shows coming up. What songs are you most excited to play in the live setting from this record? Man, uh, I can't even play Lucifer's Glory without going hoarse for about a week. So I don't even know if I can play that one live. <laughs> I really uh, I pretty much lose my voice every time I try to sing that. Um, somehow I got it recorded okay. Uh, but there wasn't like really a lot of chances for too many takes on that one because it's, it's, it's like yeah. it really uh, it's like how the Beatles would always play shout at the end of their sets because they just lose their voice after yeah. playing it or or maybe it was like shake it up baby or some, there was like some song where yeah. they like famously knew they couldn't sing another song after that so that was always the last song. Yeah. Um, man, you know I I I'm, I'm psyched to play. What are we gonna play? Uh, I don't know, man. They're, they're, hopefully they'll all sound okay. I'll, I'll play some from Tethers. Yeah. I'll play some from the new record. Um, and hopefully, you know, it'll come together nice. I've been I've been playing with uh, Brian Alvarez, who played... Um, great drummer. Great drummer. He's played with lots of good acts. Pildry Magazine. He did some shows with Nicole Young recently. Maybe... He, did he do a show for you? Including at Pet Shop. So it was nice to hang with him. And I said to him... It's like, hey, I'll see you in a few weeks. <laughs> he's, a, he's a really good... <laughs> because he'll be back with he's you. He's a good dude. Yeah. And, you know, he played in Pains for uh, Echo of Pleasure. So he's he's been with me a long time. Uh, there's a wonderful guy that plays bass with me now, uh, Eddie Marshall, who, uh, funnily enough, um, was an old family friend of my wife's because she used to be his babysitter when he was a kid. Uh, he's 30 now. Oh, but wow. she used to babysit for him when he was like four or five. And now he's like, he's like, <laughs> I'm an adult. I, I play bass guitar. I'm like, yeah, come jam sometime. Perfect. So he's been playing bass. And then Kyle Forrester, who I think a lot of people know from. Of course. He yeah. plays in Woods. He used to play in Crystal Stills. He's just like as good uh, organ shredder as they come. And uh, he's a really funny, funny guy. And, and anytime that he's available to play a show, it, it's always special. So I think we'll come with a good lineup. I'm excited to play with, um, you know. Desir, Desir. Um, how do you how do you actually say their name? Desir, Desir. Yeah, Desir, Desir. yeah. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't butcher, yeah. butchering it there. And and Joy Cleaner have been awesome to me over the. I've I played with them before. Like uh, Kyle is just like a Central Jersey legend on the scene. So uh, and they're they're a great great band. So man, it's gonna be a great show. I'm excited to play for you. You've you've created an awesome scene in Jersey City, and um, your name has become synonymous with a. Yeah, Jersey City shows. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm excited to have you on the 14th at Pet Shop. Last question before we dive into your record picks. I thought it was interesting that based on the timeline, 
you put tethers out you you probably already had this record completely written right? yeah Before it, it was it was out. weird you know like uh in fact it was for a while man like i was supposed to release tethers in spring of 2020 and uh obviously with yeah the, yeah no, with the lockdown and all true, that stuff yeah. i had to like put it aside for a while so i'd written kind of all these other songs before tethers came out which i think is really cool because then you never get into dialogue with like critics or like how things are received i think it's i think there's like some artists that are really like fixated on like well so and so said this so i'm gonna write a song like that and if i and and being able to kind of write two albums at once or at least the second album before the next one comes out prevents you from kind of engaging in that kind of what i think could be a kind of destructive dialogue i think some artists can get off on it like it's like i'll show them kind of thing you think this but now that but like i kind of like being able to just kind of like find out what I want to do and who cares how it's received. So this was all written by the time Tethers came out. And uh, conversely, I think I'll add that the next record, if I get to make one, is yeah, all that, written before this one comes out too. So there's like such like a yeah, that, lag. That was my question. That was what I was getting at. Yeah. So w- what do you see like this next record sounding like? Or what do you see yourself, you know, this record very focused on you know kind of sifting through these past memories kind of coming to terms with them what's this record gonna sound and feel like the next record what can people you know I, I don't know if i'll even get a chance to make it uh but if i do it'll probably sound more or less the same as this one i, I feel like this like this feels like an in-between record to me hopefully i get to the other side of it and get to make the third one but i really wanted to make like three albums that are kind of in this spirit yep. and I have I have a bunch of new songs and I think they're I think they're all right but you, know, you just never know I hope I get a chance to like put them down but I'm not I'm not I don't think I'm gonna change anything I'm just gonna keep doing it like this and once I do three of them then maybe I can like sit back and be like hey do I really want to play like this style of music forever I don't know but like right now I still feel like I have more to say within this within this what I'm up to and I I I mean, I hate when people are like, I'm really proud of my latest work. It's my best thing yet. Like, that's bullshit. Like, you, you'll hear some, like, you'll, you'll hear some, like, 68-year-old, like, dude that hasn't been in, like, hasn't put out a good record for, like, decades be like, actually, this is my strongest work yet because I'm promoting a fucking record. Uh, but I do feel like I took things I did on Tethers and I was able to get a little further with them this time. And, and uh, Yeah, totally. And obviously, like, progress isn't, like, inevitable or, like, a given, but I kind of think like the more I do this, the more I'm kind of like, okay, I'm kind of getting it now. And I, I think I can try to do at least one more like this that will really like make it like a full, full arc of, of songs. And I'm psyched about what I got up my sleeve. Me too. I, I can't wait to, to hear what you got cooking and this current record, everyone, Summer of Hell. It's out now via Dirty bingo records and you can get a copy on vinyl khaki vinyl via Bandcamp, the natural that's t-h-e-n-a-t-v-r-a-l dot bandcamp dot com and right now we're gonna play a few songs from summer of no light we're gonna hear the first three tracks on the record the lead single lucifer's glory Carolina, probably my favorite song on the record, and Summer of Hell.
glory Thought it was so rain as I fell through the stairs
All right, we just heard three songs from The Natural's new record, Summer of No Light. We heard the first three songs, Lucifer's Glory, Carolina, and Summer of Hell. It's out now via Dirty Bingo Records. You could get a copy on vinyl at The Natural. That's T-H-E-N-A-T-V-R-A-L dot bandcamp dot com. All right. Now, we're going to talk about the records that Kip picked. Girls Lust for Life is the first one. Here we are. So, Girls Lust for Life. Um, Girls are, I guess, were now a really great band that meant a lot uh, to my old band, The Pains of Being Peered Heart. We, we took them on tour at one point. Uh, we were all just huge fans of them, and... I think what makes Girls a special band is that there wasn't any shtick. It was just great songs, and that was basically it. Um, I think uh, Christopher writes in a way that you know, seems very innocent and very almost naive, but it's direct, and it's, it's a sort of reclaimed innocence because I know he's been through some really tough things in his life, and he still retains this kind of wide-eyed optimism and possibility and romanticism that really appeals to me. Um, and another thing that appeals to me is just how their music goes where you kind of want it to go. They're not trying to throw you curveballs or trick you or prove that they can all stop the song at the same time or do any of that stuff that uh, gets in the way of a good song. They just write songs that go where they should go. and and. And one of the songs on my new record that kind of reminds me just a little bit of them is a song called Stephanie Don't Live Here Anymore, where it's just, you know, chords and a story and it's direct and uh, and hopefully it resonates in the same way. Uh, I, I just really love what the band Girls was about um, and they'll always be uh, records that I cherish. Yeah, great band of that time period. I spent a lot of time with their music. Uh, back then and revisiting it a little bit uh, now as well, uh, because some of these gigs that I DJ, I've I've noticed that, you know, sometimes I'll DJ at this flea market in Jersey City. Um, so it's like during the day, high noon type of thing that these kind of songs, girls and bands of that era kind of like fit that vibe really well. So I've been like getting reacquainted with with girls for for those kids it's good music for day drinking you know um yeah, yeah there's exactly there's something just a little a little debauched about it on in the under under it all but it, it's really cool I, I remember oh my goodness like they showed us an early video of uh i think it was lust for life like it it's a video that debuted on an adult uh, streaming platform but the earlier version of the song <laughs> was actually just even more it was just literally um, Hunks and his punks, the dude from Hunks and his punks, Hunks, uh, basically yes. taking another dude's penis and using it as a microphone and doing a lip sync of the whole song while like singing into a penis, uh, which was great. Um, and I'm, and then it was like he got distracted that it was a music video and he was just like, I'm just going to suck this penis for a while. Um, like, so it's like, <laughs> and, and just like, it's going to be like, yeah, it's like, that's cool, but we were trying to do a video... It's like, oh, my bad, guys, my bad. Uh, 
But I just remember seeing that and being like, these guys are fucking cool, man. Like, Hunks and Punks is great, great artists too. But I'm like, these people are just pretty, they're yeah. pretty free and good and have a good, uh, good vibe about them. So, um, I don't know. The, I, the, the edited version of it came out like later, but, but, uh, man, it was, it was just pretty, pretty full on, uh, microphone penis. Microphone penis. Good, good vibes. Yes. Microphone penis doesn't have the same amplifying qualities but hey you know sometimes you just gotta do that Okay, what's what's the next song? Water, Waterloo Sunset by the Kinks. No microphone penis in this song, I think. No, but in fairness, uh, Ray Davies, I always feel like Ray Davies gets overlooked all the time. Uh, whether it's for being like uh, his songwriting or um, his significance. I, I, I just feel like I don't want to wait till Ray Davies dies for everyone to come to the conclusion that of all the people that wrote songs in the 1960s and 70s, you know, in the style of, like, a rock band. Like, I'm not saying he's the best, but there wasn't anyone better. Like, there was, like, a way he wrote songs that were insightful and thoughtful but weren't overly uh, in love with its own intellect or whatever. He just, he was an insightful writer, uh, an incredible lyricist, had deep contradictions in his life and his music. Um, for every story about Ray Davies being the coolest, there's like a story where you're just like, oh, geez, that guy. Um, you know, it's like he was a very difficult, I think, person in that time. And he was uneasy with his place uh, as a pop star or a rock star. He was very uncomfortable by it. He didn't like really want to play the game. He wasn't charming the way the Beatles would be in interviews like you know they it's it's like he wasn't he seemed like someone that was most content just writing music and didn't really want I know Brian Wilson gets this a lot but there there seems to be a kind of a, a similar thing obviously Ray didn't like have as much of a breakdown as Brian did but he really just wanted to make music and everything else that went with it seemed like he he couldn't really get along with uh, but that being said I, I think his, his records are are among the finest ever made. I mean, up like Arthur, um, Muswell Hillbillies, I think is really great, really underrated. Um, yeah. Obviously something else, Village Green. I mean, these are just amazing. Lola versus Power Man. There's just beautiful songs, uh, just really cool stuff. Um, so I, I think anything by the Kinks is usually just as good as it gets. And Waterloo Sunset, I know I'm not the first person to like this song, but like what's really touching is he kind of wrote this song like about the characters were like, I think, I don't know if it was like, his sister's name or something like that, but when he could see other people experiencing joy and he couldn't himself, it was almost like Moses at the gate, never being able to enter the promised land. He was able yeah. to so deeply relate to other people's joy, but never really have it in his own body. Um, and I, there's other stories where he's just, I don't know, he went on tour in Australia and he found his sister was living there and he didn't want to leave her house because he just wanted to be together as a family again. And he didn't want like to be on tour. He just wanted 
that connection once more. It, it's, there's like so much sad stuff uh, that he's dealt with, but I, I really think uh, the kinks are brilliant, and I don't, I really don't want us to have to wait till everyone starts posting pictures of Ray Davies on Instagram to commemorate his passing to have the conversation about he was as good as anyone and, and, as, and as much of an artist as anyone and, and really a special person. Billy Bragg talking to the tax man about poetry. Man, Billy Bragg, I mean, it's such an inspiration for me insofar as he uh, found a way to play music on stage by himself and not use an acoustic guitar, uh, which is like a, a real cool thing. He's like, you know what? Just because I'm singing folk songs uh, and I'm standing here by myself doesn't mean I have to play an acoustic guitar. I can still p- plug in. <laughs> it's like I can play an electric guitar which seems obvious, but so few people have really picked up on that possibility. It's sort of like, am I going to sing a music that's about something? Well, then I must have this wooden instrument that conveys sincerity and authenticity and a connection to a pre-industrial uh, world. Uh, I, I mean, listen, I, I, I have mixed feelings about the acoustic guitar. I've, I own acoustic guitars, it's okay. But I think there's something cool yeah. about... Uh, plugging in and making noise even if it's just by yourself and and the first song uh greetings to the new brunette uh on this record was a song i listened to over and over again for a while and it's just uh it's not and maybe maybe this isn't the cool opinion but i kind of like uh billy bragg songs that aren't um explicitly political even though i share his political views like i find yeah he's underrated as a uh, like a romantic storyteller and and um and i think he's like really cool there's this live concert from like 1985 where he's wearing uh, a pink triangle on his shirt and he's like playing for a bunch of like lads who are like holding up pints and he's like it's really important to write homosexual love songs and like as an artist it's very important to like show the full possibilities of human love and relationships and he like wrote uh, a saying like as lovers do um, which is, I think, off this album. It might be a, a off brewing up. I'm not sure. But it was just cool to see him, like, so ahead of the times at, like, wearing a yeah, silence very... equals death, like, in the early 80s, like, you know, when when discourse around uh, HIV was, like, just, like, really yeah. taboo. Um, and he was, like, a, singing to bros, um, like, hopefully thoughtful bros, but bros nonetheless, and being like, this is fucking important, and uh, this is... I'm not afraid to like engage with like uh, like homosexual love as a t- as something to sing about or feel. So um, I think I, I just remember being like, this dude's cool. Like, like everything he like says, you're just like right on. That's that's good stuff. And I think he kind of he was in the news lately. I think uh, there was like some like alt country song or pop country song that was like uh, sort of like sort of. Uh, filled with sort of like right-wing talking points and resentments towards like yeah. the wealthy. And I think, I think Billy Bragg engaged with it like thoughtfully and wasn't just like, this is fucked up. Don't do that. He was like, no, you're right to be resentful to, to power and structures of power that are depriving you of uh, basic 
you know, human right and quality of life and yeah. enriching themselves at the expense of the many. You, you just have to direct this a little bit more towards uh, where it needs to be directed, not like punch down against notions that people receiving government assistance are somehow like just not worthy of it or something like that. But like that there's actually, uh, you are right to be pissed off, but just now direct your anger towards the rich and the powerful and um, band together in unions and respect labor rights and all people who work and all that stuff. So he's still topical and important and uh, just a, seems like a thoroughly good, good, decent fellow. So um, I'm always down to listen to his music. Story. Tell me the truth this time Is the man in the mask or the Indian An enemy or a friend of mine And I'm definitely down to listen to this next musician, Bob Dylan his classic record blonde on blonde an artist that's definitely influenced uh, you yeah, yeah no it's it's it inspires all the nasally nasal whiny jews out there that they too can be singers if they can't sing you know it's like <laughs> hey um it's like david berman who shares my surname like had the great line all my favorite singers couldn't sing and i i, I always gravitate to that because like all the music i like is people like billy bragg or you know, Dylan, or I think Silver Jews might even be on here later, too. But, like, this idea of, like, non-singers who aren't in love with the sound of their own voice, that they struggle against it. Yeah. And I think there's there's something really cool about that idea of knowing you might not have the perfect instrument, but you still have something to say, getting it out there, and expressing it in your own way, and not feeling like you have to sing exactly like Chris Martin from Coldplay, or like a a more trained like Adele or something like that. Like you can be a singer even if yeah. you can't really sing. But what what I love about uh, this Dylan record um, is uh, the song I, I'd pick out would be uh, sooner or later one of us must know. It's it's no. uh, it's just it's so beautiful and uh, it's surprisingly self critical and tender at a time of his life when that was pretty rare. I think he understood in this song that through no fault of anyone, something went wrong and something uh, needed to be atoned for. And there's a, a sense of regret and, I mean, if not apology, sort of identifying himself as like, you know what, I, I fucked this up. I didn't realize. Um, I, I think there's there's not often a lot of Dylan songs where you feel a great deal of uh, tenderness, maybe. Like, a lot of his songs are a lot of, uh, you care, but I don't care, or, like, um, it keeps everything at a bit of an emotional distance um, and doesn't let you in all that much. But this one seems to be surprisingly, like, sincere and willing to, like, go there. Um, later in life, like, obviously he's written, like, a lot of beautiful, tender songs. I mean, like, Sarah, or uh, what's the Sarah, or, like, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. I mean, there's, like, beautiful ballads yeah. he's written. But uh, at this time, when he was kind of more full of bravado and self... sort of possessed of what he could do, like, this song just, I don't know, just, it, feels, it, feels, it feels sweet and sad, and I, I like it. And I love that cascading piano runs that lead into the chor- choruses, too. Uh, that's cool. 
So yeah, Bond on Bond, that's a, that's a good record. You alluded to David Berman, oh, yes. Silver Juice. I stepped on the natural bridge. <laughs> the natural bridge, but not spelled with a V, sadly. If only. Um, yeah. Well, I guess one of the reasons I didn't record music as Kip Berman uh, is because I thought he don't like. I'd always be the second-rate Berman, you know. It's like it's like you can't you can't compete with David Berman. So um, I, I I I picked a different uh, stage stage name. Um, but you know, David Bowie did the same thing. He didn't think he could compete with the guy from the monkeys, uh, David Jones, which was also his name. So, uh, he went with David Bowie and another great story is, uh, David Jones, David Bowie and, um, Pete Marriott from, uh, uh, the pretty things were going to start a band and Pete Marriott was like five foot five and he wanted to call it David and Goliath when like, and, and he would be Goliath at 5'5". Five, five. Okay, so the yep. thing about Silver Jews is it's another, the line, like all my favorite singers couldn't sing. But in this yeah. album, I guess I'd pick out the song Pretty Eyes, which closes the song album out. Um, I just think there was a real uh, unusual poetry uh, in David Berman's writing, uh, especially in the 1990s. I, it's hard for me to think of a lot of other people doing something similar. Um, I guess in the 80s in the cave or whatever but there's just something like very beautiful uh, and unapologetically uh, poetic in his lyrics um, and thoughtful in his imagery and word choices and ideas uh, what's the one in Pretty Eyes it's like when the gov- governor's heart fails the state bird falls from its tree like, there's just, like, stuff like that where you're just like, how yeah. do you write that, man? Like, that's that's from the muses themselves. Uh, he's a truly gifted uh, writer, and it's it's so sad to know that, you know, he's he's not with us anymore making music. I know his Purple Mountains record was fantastic um, as well. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he put out a lot of records, and I come back to them again and again, and I just think he's, like, a real inspirational writer. Um and uh, it's funny to think that he and Stephen Malkmus were like college friends and the sort of different paths they took. They lived uh, together in Jersey City and Hoboken. It's funny, this uh, friend of David Berman's, she posted some photos of him in his Jersey City apartment. This, this uh, She was friends with him from college, University of Virginia, and she said she went to visit them some weekend in 1990 before she moved up here and she shared like some really cool uh, photos of david berman in this jersey city apartment in 1990 there's also like a couple of original photos of stephen malkmus i guess they're like 21 22 years old or something like that no that's that's awesome man i used to have a poster of uh, a silver juice poster in my dorm room and it was like him shirtless sort of holding a half-drunk glass of whiskey with a cigarette in one arm, kind of staring into the middle distance like he's watching TV and some, like, woman on the other couch who he's clearly not 
giving the time of day to like looking annoyed at him and I'm just like and I was like that guy's that guy's really cool <laughs> I don't I don't know I always I would, my name was Berman too I'm like I'd, I try to convince people that like uh now that he was a relative I'm like yeah we're just we we look the same right and he's like sort of a haggard middle yeah. haggard <laughs> haggard middle-aged man I'm like an 18 year old college kid like barely have like a chest hair and now as a haggard middle-aged man myself I'm like finally I'm there I'm there <laughs> You know, I could see the sim- can see then hear the similarities in like lyrical style. He just sings it all two octaves lower than I can. It's like weird. It's like if you if you like chopped and screwed my voice, you'd get David David's voice. Uh, it's, it's like uh, so deep. I remember always trying when I was starting pains to. I didn't realize my voice was as high as it was. It was like weird. I I always was trying to sing like Stephen Pastel or David Berman or like I thought that was like the way to sing, but I didn't. I just realized I have a. I've got a high whiny voice and I, I can't really hide it. So now I'm now I'm now I'm now I'm and I'm leaning into it in my later years. <laughs> Dreaming in your yard. One of these days, these days will end. The kitchen window, the light will bend. You'll be carving and then last but not least rolling stones through the past you know which is i think i just went for i just went for a greatest hits here just because uh you don't have between the buttons well actually that's not even i love she smiled sweetly but i don't even know the song to pick from this one uh geez uh hold on maybe maybe i can see what's on the record um but i I, what was uh, the original idea of this this album was it was going to be really stonesy, and I wrote a bunch of songs that I thought sounded like inspired by sort of like the Rolling Stones and all that swagger and like machismo and stuff like that, but it was going to be about very unstonesy things. Like it was sort of like, okay, let's be the Rolling Stones, but all these songs are kind of sad and self reflective and like tender and, and yeah. wounded. Um, so, but you can, I, I can hear it in a lot of stuff on this album. There was a song that was a B-side that ne- we never put on the album called Marmalade that sounded really, uh, stonesy. And then, uh, I feel like I, I, in Wintergreen, I feel like I love that song on Exile on Main Street, uh, Let It Loose. So I feel like there's a little bit of, uh, Let It Loose on uh, kind of influence seeping in there and your temperate ways sounds a little stonesy to me. And, yes. uh. Oh, what's what's some other song? Oh my God, a glass of laughter. I, like when I wrote that one, I was like, that feels yeah. like really like, um, sort of mid '60s Stonesy. I, I felt like I felt like the for some reason I was just like, you know, I'm always a little sympathy for the devil kind of person, uh, and I, I feel like the yeah. Rolling Stones are kind of like the contemporary devil. Uh, all aside from the song with that title, <laughs> that it's always like, who would want to yeah. be like the Rolling Stones? Like it's sort of like this the most ultra band. Um, but like you know, like in two thousand and ten, no one wanted to be like the Smashing Pumpkins either. So I was, I was kind of like I was feeling sort of into the Stones when I was writing a lot of this album. So I, I think there's like there's sort of like sonic footprints uh, that sort of echo throughout the Summer of No Light with the Stones. Uh, but I'm not even sure exactly which songs are are which.
There's no time to Kid, we're coming to the end of today's episode of Look at My Records. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Everyone, the new record by The Natural, Summer of No Light. It's out now. You can get it at The Natural. That's N-A-T-V-R-A-L dot Bandcamp. Dot com available on khaki vinyl and of course kip is playing at pet shop on thursday september 14th joy cleaner and desir desir are also playing and you're playing at purgatory on september 12th with lightheaded and you're doing a in-store at princeton record exchange on Saturday, September. 9th, oh yeah, that right? one's a free one at four in the afternoon, and I'm gonna go down to the IVN afterwards uh, and have some tater tots and some beers with some friends. So yeah, it's uh, I'm gonna bring my kids to the Princeton Record Exchange. It's a, I think it's a family friendly event. So come down if you're in Central Jersey and be playing solo electric in there, and then if you feel enough for it, come down to the IVN after and have a beer and celebrate uh, the new record with me. Yeah, the Princeton Record Exchange, my all time favorite record store. So that's. That's cool that you're playing there. And you got some other tour dates as well, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going down to uh, North Carolina to play at uh, the Terrorbird t- Day Party for Hopscotch Festival. Um, and on the way down there, I'm stopping Very at cool. uh, Washington, D.C. and opening for uh, New Orleans legends uh, Quintron and Miss Pussycat. Um, Peggy Wang, uh, used to, who used to play band... Music with me and Payne's. Uh, she's a New Orleans re- um, native, and so is Art Boonparn, who did all the Payne's, a lot of the Payne's videos and some of the natural videos as well. He's a big New Orleans guy, so uh, they're jealous that I get to play with Quintron, uh, but that'll be rad. And then I'm playing like, oh, yeah, I'm playing a record store in uh, Philly this Saturday. I don't know if this will be up in time, but on September 2nd, I'm playing with the Tisberries, which is a great power pop band out of. Yeah, they're Philly. awesome from Philadelphia. They're doing a little in-store, acoustic in-store. I'm going to play, too. So Saturday, uh, the 2nd, at Main Street Music. Uh, and then on the 8th of September, I'm playing in Phoenixville, uh, Pennsylvania, at a record shop called The Record Shop. So I've got a few things coming up, but I'm really looking forward to coming to Jersey City. Obviously, New York, hometown show, Princeton, hometown shows. You know, I'm, I'm pretty uh, cheesy. I claim a lot of hometowns. You know, it's like Philly hometown shows. I grew up That's in Philly. Good. You know, I feel like I've been everywhere, man. So uh, I have many good. hometowns, but maybe none. Who knows? Thank you, Tom. You are the best. <laughs> and I really appreciate all you You're do to like, make me- live music happen in Jersey City and Brooklyn and with uh, Look at My Records and everything. So thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited. I'm thrilled for the show on the 14th. Everyone, don't miss it. Come on down. All right, everyone, we're playing one more track from Summer of No Light. It's a song we talked about, the final track on the record, Wintergreen. Cause the winter's 
the winter's almost gone.